0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. On February 15th, 1950, Walt Disney's Cinderella opened in theaters across the United States. A little less than a month later, a legend of the gridiron was born. And this player had a Cinderella story moment of his own in what would ultimately be voted as the greatest moment in NFL history let's just say that the movie from Walt Disney and the play from this player were both immaculate. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode
1: is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean
0: and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time we step off the DeLorean. The date is December 23rd, 1972, and we're in the Steel City in Three Rivers Stadium. We're here to witness what would ultimately become, it would be voted for the NFL 100 celebration as the greatest moment in NFL history. Yes, the Immaculate Reception, baby. We're here to witness it firsthand. But just like that intro, it was almost destined. Because Franco Harris was born just less than a month after the Cinderella movie was released in theaters across America. But why do we bring this up for this episode? Well, it's because this week's guest cut his chops in watching football during this Steelers... (sighs) cut his chops in watching football and the Steelers with this game, or at least it's one of the first earliest memories that he has of watching pro football. This week's guest is our resident T-1000 of the Sports History Network, because this guy, man, he just does not stop. This dude is a machine, just like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator. But this guy, T-1000, I mean, that wasn't the Terminator. I always think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think he was the other guy, you know, the one that won't stop chasing down a Terminator, had to protect him and, and all those kinds of things. Well, let's move on to football. You see, for this guest, Darren Hayes is the host of the Pigskin Dispatch, which is a daily football history podcast. And he also runs PigskinDispatch.com, which is a blog version of the podcast. So if you'd rather read it versus listen to it, or hey, you maybe do both. We get into Darren's history, why he started the show, and what it's all about here in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Sports History Network. You may notice, next week, there will not be a Football History Dude episode waiting for you in your inbox Wednesday morning. But don't fret, the show must still go on, as it will. But I'm changing up the release schedule a little bit. I'm going to go from having a weekly show to a bi-weekly instead, meaning every other week. Now, this reason is because I want to focus more on building up the foundation of what we have started with the Sports History Network, which is going to be the headquarters for sports yesteryear. And I truly do believe that we're going to capture that vision. And I want to give effort to doing so. I mean, come on, not everybody can be like Terminator like Darren. Well, again, uh, at the beginning of this, he's not the Terminator necessarily. He's the guy going after the the Terminator going after him, T-1000, but then again, that didn't turn out too well for him. So let's just say Darren is the Terminator. And to learn more about Sports History Network and all of the shows that we have here to provide, or maybe you even want to get in touch with us to start your own show, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com. But for now, just like the Terminator, come with me if you want to live, let's listen to this interview with Darren Hayes. Being that you're that close to all three, I mean, you're just in the hotbed of like the beginning and everything. And okay. So let's just get into the show. I'm going to snap into my fingers. This is one of those things where we pop into like we're flies on the walls and to start the show, I'm going to give you a scenario. So we just got invaded by aliens, right? They heard about football for the first time. They want to come to earth. They're like, we need to learn these sports of these primitive peoples. They come to our, they're peaceful though. They're peaceful peoples. They're peaceful aliens. They want to learn about our sports. How would you dare and convince them that football is the greatest sport on earth? Well, it's the most complicated game on earth. It's got the biggest rule book
1: of any sport on earth. And it's just the, uh, uh, the, the chess matches are not, are go beyond just the outside of the game. Every single player has a chess match going on. They have a challenge in front of them. They have a strategy they're going to do, a technique they're going to do. And it goes into the team sport as well. And that's that's why it's the greatest game in the world because there's so many different possibilities. There's so many different ways you can handle a situation. And it's whoever the, the smartest guy is and the people that perform the best, that's who wins. And that's, that's the great thing about it.
0: Yeah, you mentioned something there too, that there's so many things that could go wrong. And I think it's cool because... Unlike some of the other sports, there are so many more variables for each play where everything has to go right. And I like how you put smart. If you're smart, you can win because people think that football is just a big brute sport sometimes. But no, no. it's all about that strategy, just like in wartime. So is that what they're doing? Are they going to come here and they're going to study football so they can strategize against us in the war times or something like that? (laughs) Uh, Maybe that could be (laughs) that and Uh, uh, and abduct some cows or something. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. I know I'm in the middle of nowhere. We'll see what happens. And uh, it has nothing to do with football. I just kind of brought it on. Just let's go from there. And reason why I brought you on though, let's talk about pigskin dispatch. Let's tell me and the listener of the show, what is pigskin dispatch and how did it get started?
1: Well, pigskin dispatches it's, I got the way it started is I, uh, I'm a Steelers fan. I'm not going to be apologetic for it. And uh, we had probably one of the biggest knuckleheads in modern football, Antonio Brown on our team. And then he populated the news and I, it was just such a negative vibe you got from just some of his antics, some of the things he did. And I wanted to be a way of, to be what I call positive football, the positive aspects. It's it's a fun game. It's a game. It's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be overly serious. Um, You know, we, I joke about, you know, crying about uh, losing the big game, you know, but uh, all in all, it's fun and it's entertainment and that's what it's supposed to be. And people get a little bit too serious sometimes on uh, social media and that. And I wanted to bring a positive aspect to it. So I started off by bringing out people that are doing great things for communities, for helping other people out, uh, using their their, uh, celebrity to, do awesome things like, you know, Russell Wilson's of the world. Um, Just him and his wife just go all out and help their community. They're starving, you know, especially during this pandemic, JJ Watts, you know, just good people like that. And then my, I'm a, I'm an ex football official. I retired from high school football officiating. I did for 27 years and I did quite a bit of writing for a a referee magazine, not referee magazine, but an officiating site, uh, officiating.com. And I was the history buff of it. So I had to go through and dig up what, you know, why is this rule like this? Why is this that? And I just loved the football history aspect of it and the nostalgia. So I sort of combined the two of them together and came up with Pigskin Dispatch.
0: Yeah, and then now it's, uh, geez, you've been, we made a comment joking on the show before about how you went full belly smack into the deep end. It's just (laughs) nonstop popping out content day by day by day. How do you keep up with your schedule?
1: I just make it part of my routine. You know, I get up in the morning, I, I do a little bit there, do a little bit of reading, research, you know, go to work, get lunchtime, do a little bit more, come home, spend time with the family. You know, right now they all go to bed. I I stay up and I still do football and write about football and enjoy football. I I love it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Sounds a little bit... Uh, I can. I have a, a parallel s- system there, it looks like, but uh, definitely not a daily. I have to give you major props for being someone who puts out content on a daily basis like that. And we'll get into later about maybe some of your forward-thinking projects, but you mentioned something there. You're not apologetic for being a Steelers fan, but was that first quarter of last night's game the worst feeling you ever had in your life, or was there even a worse oh. moment as a Steelers fan? Oh, it was a gut punch. You know, probably
1: the only thing that may have been worse was probably, I think it was like 1994 when they were favored to win the AFC championship game, go to the Super Bowl and they lost to San Diego. That, that was like, uh, that was, you know, that was bad. That was a bad
0: day. <laughs> that was bad for you. That was also bad for me as a Detroit Lions fan. Do you know why? No. Okay. So the head coach of the Chargers, in the 94, who was he? Do you remember? Uh, I can picture his face. I can't Mr. Bobby Ross. Bobby Ross, yeah. So Bobby Ross goes to the Super Bowl. They think this guy's a heck of a coach, right? So mm-hmm. then the Lions and in their infinite wisdom decide to pick up Bobby Ross, bring him to Detroit. Saginaw Valley State University is where they had their training camp all the time, and that's a local place around here where I and we would go up there as a kid. You watch Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders, now this is just this isn't just Bobby Ross's fault, but Bobby Ross was maybe the one who threw the last log on the camel's back. Not too long after that, the year after Bobby Ross comes to Detroit, Barry Sanders is out of here. He retires from the league. Now he's not the ultimate record holder. So Bobby Ross is a bad heart place in my spot for him. But (laughs) I don't know if everybody else feels the same way about him. I did get his autograph once, I guess. That (laughs) that counts for something. Yeah. So what about the best Steelers moment of all time for you personally? Oh, I, I think it had to be, well.
1: I I've I got to – I'm blessed. I got to see all six Super Bowl wins in my lifetime. I remember all of them, you know, even – I think I was like 11 years old when they won the first Super Bowl. And uh, probably that first Super Bowl was, was awesome, you know, seeing Art Rooney get to, you know, hold the – all choked up, had the cigar in one hand, sort of choked up with the Lombardi in the other, just staring at it, you know. That was an awesome moment. I think the the Super Bowl against the Cardinals, sort of this generation of Steelers – Uh, Especially the way they did it, you know, Harrison's interception right before the half. And, you know, that's probably one of the greatest plays in, in Super Bowl history, his return of that Kurt Warner pass and the San Antonio Holmes catch at the end. It was, it was just, you know, that was a very euphoric moment for a Steelers fan right there.
0: Yeah, even though I didn't have any, I mean, I was rooting for the Cardinals that year just because of as a Lions oh, fan, you, you always root for the underdogs. Yeah, I've had plus. enough
1: gut punches in the last twenty four hours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, but that was two of my personal from watching the games most memorable plays in Super Bowl history from the same team from the same Super Bowl. When you talk, like you said, the homes and then zone and the 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 Harrison, that's the one that sticks in my mind all the time. Just. If you would have been, because it was like, I, was it zero zeros on the clock? So if you would have got pulled down at like oh, three yeah. yard lines, yeah, they were done. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald went on that historic run leading up to that. Kurt Warner Mm -hmm. maybe could have rode off into the sunset, but then things flipped on the script with Harrison. And now he's making commercials, tackling guys and doesn't want to get tackled (laughs) and stuff. But (laughs) speaking of that, you talked about being a high school uh, umpire referee for multiple, you said 27 years? 27 seasons. Yes. So we're, let's go back to your football origin story before we dig into some of the stories you've uncovered from the pigskin dispatch. How did football start for you, Darren Hayes?
1: Well, my, my father and my grandfather were big football fans. Um, I, I live, you know, living in Erie, Pennsylvania, we're less than a hundred miles from Cleveland, Buffalo, Pittsburgh. And back in the uh, early fifties when my dad was, you know, a teenager, he, uh, had to experience, you know, it was the, the Jim Brown era of the Cleveland Browns. So the Cleveland Browns were the only team people talked about. The Bills really weren't around yet. And the Steelers were just this pathetic team that everybody just beat up on. Well, my father, just to be different, he said, because we're in Western Pennsylvania, we root for the Steelers. That's our team in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, he sort of, you know, adopted that over to me. And when I grew up and I just happened to grow up when I f- – one of the first games I remember watching and I wasn't very old was, you know, the immaculate reception, you know, sort of the turning point of the organization. Um, we we live in a college town. I, I, thought, I actually grew up in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, and it's a college town at Edinburgh University, Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania it used to be at Edinburgh State College. Um, and it's a, it's a football town. It's a college town. And we would go, you know, every Saturday during football season, we'd go down to their games. Um, we have a couple other local colleges. You, know, you talked about Saginaw state. You're probably familiar with Gannon university and Mercyhurst university used to play. in that, uh, they, what do the you, I've heard of the Mercer, but you, what there, was the other I name? Mer- Mer- Mercyhurst college and Gannon university. Gannon was a big, uh, rival in basketball and that, that so what's, what league is Saginaw State in? I've
0: it's got a that's Gliac. Gliac. yeah, okay. That sounds familiar. Right. I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah, I don't yeah. really follow I only used them okay. as a conduit to get to my Detroit Lions during training camp. I, I used to drive by them all the time, uh, okay, but I didn't okay. really
1: <laughs> Yeah. So that that was it. Then we used to have a lot of times in the like late eighties, early nineties, the uh, Bills and the Steelers would scrimmage at, at Edinburgh University. So, I mean, and in Edinburgh University's football field is less than a quarter mile away from my, where my father lives to this day, where I grew up. So we walked down to the game show and got to see, you know, Bruce Smith and, you know, some of the great Cordell Stewart as a rookie and, you know, things like that. It was kind of kind of a cool experience. They had it like three or four years. And it was kind of a neat thing.
0: Yeah. Like you said, to be able to scrimmage those two teams that close to you in a small little college town like that, thats that's unique. And like I said, I mean, the... I, I don't know how all, I know there's some stadium or some teams out there that they have their training camps that are, they go to a little place like that. But when the Lions did it, it was like a, a totally unique experience for fans. Granted, nowadays, I think you can get into their training camps for some of the stuff, but it wasn't like it, it is, or was back then during the, oh geez, early mid nineties. It was like a five or six year run. I forgot, forgot how many years it was total, but that was. What's that? Yeah, they they called them uh,
1: I think they called them rookie scrimmages because basically for the rookies and the first year players, like Bruce Smith wasn't suited up. He's standing on the sideline. You know, he's a gigantic man. I I, I didn't picture him being that big. You know, from seeing him on TV, but when you when you're standing, you know, behind the ropes, ten feet away from him, you're like, oh my god, a guy's gigantic. You know, so that, he was impressed. Yeah, so, but just little things like that that we were ingrained in football, high school football. You know, I was every friday we were at a high school football game
0: and then you said you got into the being a ref how how did that happen was it early in your career there
1: uh, yeah i was probably about 20 years old i was i was still in college and a good friend of mine was an official for a few years and you know being a college kid you know you want to buy some pizzas and stuff like that and he said hey you want to make a couple extra bucks you you know come and join this football chapter, learn how to be an official because first year you just go and hold chains at games, but you get the best seats in the house and, and maybe you like it. And I did. And I enjoyed the people I worked with. I enjoyed the rules of the game. You got to see another aspect of the game. You're you know, the, the people that you always hated, you know, the zebras out on the field. You, you got to know them. You're like, Hey, this is kind of, kind of a cool thing. And, and I, I also got when I got on a field, you know, you get, this first couple of years, you get the jitters out, but then you just start enjoying the whole thing. You enjoy walking in the stadium and you know nobody's on your side. You know, it's just kind of a great thing. The rules are the only thing on your side, you know, and it's uh, you have coaches. No matter what you're going to call, everybody's going to be on your case about it. And I don't know I just you get a little high from that, too. You know, It's kind
0: of a neat little aspect to it. It's funny, though, even though the officials are similar to maybe what we see as like the police officers when they're walking around, you get a little bit, uh, you know, I guess naturally want to bounce back away. But it's that order that the officials bring to the game that truly makes it great, because if they didn't, I, I don't know, to the to the point where the game is set in motion to be able to tell that story or as opposed to let's go back to the whole 50 yards and or what do they call it cloud in a dust that's what it was called kind of football which kind of brings me to some of the interesting stories maybe you've picked up throughout your pigskin dispatch you gave me a little cheat list for the listener of the show right here but one of the first ones you brought about was the evolution of the field let's talk about the evolution of the field
1: well, that's, that's kind of a neat thing, and I really got into this when I was writing for an official's uh, website. And if you go back, you know, of course, we all know that football got its roots from soccer and rugby. Uh, so the football fields prior to 1880 were uh, they were all over the place. It was just you know Yale had their football field as one side, you know, Princeton would have one that's their size. They were all over. So. Uh, just for an example, like in 1870, uh, they had a fields were 70 yards wide, 140 yards long. You know, today's fields like just over 53 yards wide. And of course, you know, 100 yards with two 10 yard end zones. Uh, 1871, a year later, this went to 100 yards wide, 166 yards long. You know, one year span, it changed that much. And they also had 25 players on the field for that field. That's why they had to make it so wide. 1872, they dropped down to 20 players and went to 84 and a third yards wide and 133 yards long. So you can see it shrunk up a little bit, uh, 10 less players on the field. And then we got to 1880 when the great Walter camp came up with some things that defined football, American football from rugby and soccer, really pulled away. Uh, He had 11 players, 53 yards wide on the field, 110 yards long. It's a little bit different than what we have today. And the only line on the whole field were the end lines or the goal lines, which were the end lines too, and a center field stripe. That's all there was on the field. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, When it got, uh, you know, everybody's familiar with the the Teddy Roosevelt getting involved because football was pretty brutal back then. People were dying like crazy, major injuries. Uh, Brought the passing game in around 1906. And this is where the name gridiron came about. They had to make the rules for passing were kind of crazy. You uh, people like Walter Camp and some of the other staunch uh, places like Harvard and some of the other Ivy League schools, they didn't want passing in there. They had to do it as a concession, or Roosevelt was going to shut it down. Where you had other people like you know Amos Alonzo Stagg, uh, John Heisman, um, and some some other folks, great coaches, they wanted the passing game. They But so the rules for passing the first year were just ridiculous. If you threw an incomplete pass, it was a turnover and down. It was like fumbling. You ball hits the ground defense takes over the ball. Uh, The quarterback or the thrower had to be more than five yards behind the line of scrimmage. You couldn't throw within five yards of the center had to be, you know, there's a zone five yards, either side of the center. So to, to, be able to officiate that because they only had two officials on the field. They had an umpire and a referee. They had to put a grid pattern or a checkerboard pattern on the football field. So there's these giant five yard squares all over the football field. And you can see old pictures from you know around 1906 to 1911. You'll see that. And that's where the name gridiron came from because it looked as one uh, reporter described, looked like a giant gridiron, you know, a waffle, you know, for hmm. sure.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that, and like you said, man, how would they even try to keep, with only two officials, how would you keep track of all of that? That's just insane to expect.
1: Yeah, it's kind of neat, the officiating development, because back, uh, I think the referee position came about in, it was probably like uh, 1874, I think they came up with the referee position, because they had to have somebody be in charge of the game, so what they did is they had a referee in the middle of the field and then on each sideline would come up with a judge. So, you know, if it's Harvard playing Yale, Yale would have their judge out on their sideline and Harvard would have their judge on their sideline. And basically it's sort of almost like what the captains of the teams are supposed to do today, but they'd stay out there and squawk and, you know, complain and mutter about, you know, what was going on what the other team was doing wrong. And they kept going to the referee and have to do that. So, About 1892, I think it was, they stopped and they said, okay, this judge thing's not working. The referee has to have a little bit more authority in the game, but we need to give him some assistance. So they came up with the umpire position and the umpire, much like he is today, is in charge of the ball and the players, you know, making sure, you know, counting players and things like that. The referee is in charge of sort of everything else and oversees, make sure the game management type of things and the offensive backfield. So that's sort of some cool things that have come about that you don't realize.
0: Yeah. A lot of the behind the scenes things, again, let's just not forget to mention this is part of pigskin dispatch and you get to hear a lot of these things and when they happen, because you talk about the daily occurrences and I guess let's jump forward into that. What's your plans for when the daily football stuff is not happening, the occurrences in the next future?
1: Well, One good thing is we talk about every day, we want to honor the legends of the game. And the way we've started out, especially this first year, is every Hall of Fame player in the Football Hall of Fame and the College Football Hall of Fame, I think it's almost 1,500 uh, people all together, uh, some of them are in both, but we, we honor them on their birthdays. And usually every day you have between two and six people from the hall of fames that have a birthday that day. We say a quick little bio, what they're famous for. Maybe there's an interesting story. Cause that's, that's really what it's the most fun part about pigskin dispatches is telling a story when there's a story to be told, uh, I, I just I love that, and I think listeners love that, and we want to grab onto those stories and make sure they're told, and that people are remembered because they're what created the game, and it could be somebody from you know that played in eighteen ninety four for Yale, or it could be you know somebody that's just made the Hall of Fame last year and played five years ago, you know. So it's 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 a great that's one thing that way we keep it the perpetual thing all year long. Uh, the other thing, some projects we want to do is probably coming up after the Super Bowl. We're going to go into and hopefully get a lot of guests. I, th- I think we're talking in talks with uh, Mr. Uh, Arnie Chapman about coming on and maybe talking about some f- going through the numbers of the jersey numbers. We want to start at zeros and work all the way to 99 and talk about the th- some of the greatest players that wore those numbers, especially in the NFL you know, if we can get some uh, college football or some Canadian help from some Canadian folks and from CFL, we'll talk about them too, because it's it's all football history.
0: Yeah, we can slap me in somewhere around number 20, we'll call it probably. That's what I figured. <laughs> 20 would probably be a good number for you. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned to the story of the players, and that's really where it's so interesting going back to history. And I don't know about you, but when I listen or read and lately it's been more interviews so i've been able to like hear these stories but i set myself that theater of the mind and i go back in time and I'm, i love movies about time travel and tv shows too so i can kind of like almost picture myself being there a fly on the wall and watching that story or anything like that what when you were researching what's the story that just blew your socks off and you're like i had no idea this happened or this occurred back in the day. Well, we had, it was actually a recent one. Um, we had a, a Rose Bowl,
1: I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was 1922 Rose Bowl. And you had Washington University, from Washington State, playing uh, Alabama. And it's, they call it the, the Rose Bowl that sort of put, established the South as a football power. Because no Southern team had ever been in the Rose Bowl before. And they were playing a heavily favored Washington team. And Washington had a player named George Wilson. And he has probably one of the greatest nicknames I've ever heard. Wildcat was his name. So I, I just love saying it, George Wildcat Wilson. And uh, so th- this guy came out for Washington. And they they rattled off a, a decent lead. And they got about halfway into the second quarter. And he got injured, had to leave the game. Alabama had a running back called Johnny Mac Brown, who's, you know, very famous. Alabama, as soon as George Wilson went out, because they were all two-way players back then, uh, George Wildcat Wilson goes out, Johnny Mac Brown and the rest of Alabama just goes nuts and they rattle off 19 points and, you know, they take the lead. And all of a sudden, Wilson comes back in the game in the middle of the fourth quarter because Alabama's driving. And he comes on the field on defense, stalls Alabama deep into uh, Washington territory, and they turn over on downs, and they drive they drive the field, and uh, somehow Alabama hangs on and wins. I think they ran out of time, but the, just the momentum of it, you know, the whole story, and it's, it's just really fascinating. Just the the players from that, that game, and what it did is with Alabama winning, it made the South get some recognition in the football world and, you know, look where we are today in college football. You know, you can't, can't deny it. The SEC is probably the strongest league and I guess we'll, we'll see later tonight. Uh, so Ohio State plays them, but uh, it's definitely the dominant conference in the U S right now.
0: I almost wish that we could make it a mandatory where they have to have cool nicknames like they did back in the day. It's like, they all had nicknames, you know, the, the <laughs> bullet or they had uh uh, what's the guy? Oh, man, what's the one? Johnny Blood McNally and just all these different kinds of nicknames that nowadays you don't really, I mean, I guess maybe they give each other, but it's not like first name, parentheses, nickname, last name like they used to have back in the day all the time. Well, some some of them have great
1: names without nicknames because there's a, one guy we just did for the Pro Football Hall of Fame the other day, Max Speedy. Yeah, like a football name, or what you know, that's that's an awesome name.
0: (laughs) Bronco Nagurski is one that stuck in my mind all the time. It just sounds like a football name.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. those are some great names. That's probably another show that we want to do after our 100 days. We were talking, I was talking with another uh, gentleman I talked to quite a bit about nicknames, especially NFL nicknames. We were talking about just going on and just talk about all the great nicknames of the the day. So that might be a future, future podcast too that we can. Speaking
0: of other people you mentioned before in our pregame, we had, you're, you're talking to Bill Schaefer. Let's, let's give him a little bit of recognition and what that his uh, team does.
1: They have a, a website called the gridiron uniform database uh, it's gridironuniforms.com. And they go and take every single uniform in, in professional football is what they try to do. I, th- I think just American professional football. And they try to, Recreate it by uh, graphically on their web pages. So you might want to, you know, see the, the Chicago Bears in you know, 1931. They'll have their home and away uniforms if they had them back then. I don't know if they did, but you know, they'll, they'll have a graphic of what they wore that year. Um, he he posts quite often on social media, especially Twitter, where you know if there's a game coming up this weekend and you know the Cleveland Browns are wearing some odd combination that. You know, us regular viewers don't notice. He, Bill points it out to us and he shows it to us, which is kind of cool. So it's all it's all eras of, of professional football. and It's it's really a neat thing.
0: And something that's a part of the uniform is the helmet. That's another one of our topics to talk about, the evolution of the helmet. Let's bring that up here uh, and kind of give us some secret sauce behind the story of the helmet.
1: Uh, uh, the helmet. The, the thing about the helmet, the, it's a very interesting story, is – who was the first one to wear a helmet? And I've, I have did a lot of research on it. There's a lot of people that have some really interesting things on there, but it seems to come down to the three different individuals. And a couple of them are, are pretty big names in not only in football history, but you wouldn't associate them with football history, but they're very big names. The first one is John A. Naismith, you know, inventor of basketball. He's one of the people credited to – the three that may have been the first one to wear what you call a, hel- a helmet and helmets, you know, a head protection. and Naismith's story is I, I sort of traced it down. They don't really know the game, but Naismith was suffering a lot from, he was a center. And back then, you know, they would just slap the, the snot out of the center to, when he got rid of the ball so they could, you know, get an advantage and he would have just his ears would be banged up and bloody and everything else. So his, girlfriend at the time that he was in college his name was Maud, that's who he ended up marrying she sort of sewed something up for him with some cloth to cover his ears and he wore it in a game and i sort of dabbled in it because they said the yale games where he got, really got beat up the game after the yale game in 1891 was october 17th so i'm sort of saying that's the, the first date and he had this cloth covering on her so inventor of basketball could be credited with wearing a helmet and football. Next person is a very famous Admiral uh, Joseph Reeves, and he is known for being the, um, the father of aviation off of aircraft carriers in World War II, or I guess World War I era. But this is the early 1890s. He had a doctor tell him that he had to quit playing football or he was going to gain instant insanity. So he had to wear, do something because he was getting knocked around the head. So he had a shoemaker fashion him some leather straps that he put around his head. Um, and there's some great uh, websites that have pictures of these things. And so he wore that on his his head and uh, kept protected from him. And he went back to playing football, didn't listen to the doctor and didn't have instant insanity, you know, did some great things militarily for <laughs> the world, you know, and our country. And the third individual that's credited is 1894, George Oliver Barclay. He's probably the least famous of them all. And he had a local saddle maker make sort of a mushroom type head covering that he put on his head. And and he wore it in in a game time. So in 1894. So we had 1891, early 1890s, 1894. And a lot of people, I've heard of the three, I've heard every single one of them, somebody crediting them with being you know, the, the helmet. And my definition of the helmet is a head protection unit. So I think they all sort of qualify. But I think probably that it was Admiral Reeves was the, the winner, I think, that has the, um, with the straps being over his head because he's protecting his head with it. He was the first one to protect his head. So that's my winner, I think.
0: Isn't that something out of necessity? And as someone who, like you said, I never would have even heard that name as far as a football, but then again, goes on and helps essentially win the war. Cause that's how world war two was won: was aircraft carriers. They dominated the field and without them, you were sunk in the water. And you mentioned Naismith as well. And he's, of course, we, we've heard of him as basketball, but from what I, I heard before, and this is way before I started the podcast that name Naismith, one reason why he started basketball was to keep the football athletes in conditioned throughout the winter. Was that what you've seen, too? I've, I've seen that also. And that's why they have five
1: on the side in basketball, because you had 11 on the field. You wanted all your players staying in shape, so you had five on five. And I don't know what the other guy did. Maybe he took a water break or something, but...
0: Yeah, and Naismith also. I mean, with I've always heard so many different things as far as the basketball goes, and there's so many. It's like so close in that little area where basketball, football, and like the uh, the hotbed of the. The the beginnings of like I'll call it the late 19th century for creating sports and then pushing into the the golden era of the 1920s and you and I have talked about this before for trying to create the SHN logo trying to figure out that nostalgic look and because that was a time when people first had disposable income now we're back from the Great War and and their minds were never going to have a war again and we're just going to focus on being having happy times and such and that's when they could focus on football. That could focus on some other things. What? Okay. Another thing, common terms, football terms. What are some common football terms that maybe have an origin that we never realized?
1: Well, in football, if you go back to the football basics, it's, it's re- really a, a simple game, you know? So, so a lot of the terms are very simple minded if you really think about it, but things I never really thought about. Okay. The word like onside kick, you, you know where that term came from? Back when people wanted to do an onside kick like we do today, they used to lay the ball on its side on the tee, and then they'd kick it. It was an onside kick. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. I never really thought about that. The word touchdown, I mean, it, was, it came from, from rugby. And back in the early parts of football, a t- to score a touchdown, a player had to cross the goal line and take the ball and touch it to the ground, touch the ball down. And that was came from rugby and it, football adopted it and had it for a few years that way also. And, you know, sometimes in the 1890s, they eliminated that rule. And to be more like today, you just, the ball has to break the plane. Um, the positioning of it. Um, of course, they got the, the terms uh half back uh, from the um, soccer and rugby game. But when Walter camp in 1880 came up with line of scrimmage, he had a player that was called, snapper back and he was in the center of the line he got called the center eventually the guy that received the snap was was not as far back as the halfback so he was the quarterback quarter dash back and they end up merging the word coining the word quarterback um here's some interesting words positions of guard well they at first they were called uh next to center was their name well they're main job was to protect the center to guard him when he snapped the ball. So they end up becoming the guards and the most people that were making the most tackles on defense were um, just inside the ends on the offense and the people that on offense that were just inside the ends were called the next to ends. Well, since the people were making all the tackles, they called them tackles on defense the offensive tackle was the one that was supposed to block him, So they both got the name of tackle. And, of course, the ends were the ends. So just kind of a, a neat little concept how we got the terms for f- football.
0: Huh. You mentioned, like, I, okay, so that's just funny. I was having this conversation with one of my guys today from my day job. He, could, he got the guard and tackle mixed up. So I had her say, nope, the guard's the one by the center. And – it's funny because in my mind, I was thinking maybe they call them the guards because they're the closest to the quarterback, which back in the day used to not really matter the, the position. But then flash forward to today's sport where if you don't have a good quarterback, you're doomed. And back that, it's just, it's just funny how things have changed and evolved just like some of these other evolutions we're talking about. And one thing that the quarterback cares about <laughs> would be that, that thing that he's chucking that pigskin. I mean, what about the, the evolution of the football? How about what happened there? Uh, Well, I always sort of was wondering one day about where did the football get its shape like
1: that? And you got to go back in ancient history, even before soccer and rugby, really. And they had, you know, a bunch of different games that they played in, you know, ancient times. But England had a game called Balloon. I think I'm saying it right. It's almost like the word balloon, but it has a W before the end. And what that was is it would blow up a pig's bladder, inflate it, and hit it around, you know they have two teams and you had to hit it, try to get it past the other team's goal by hitting it with your hands, you know, bouncing. Almost like you would do with a balloon today, you know, the kids bring a balloon home and you're bouncing around the, the living room. So that's sort of where, where the pig's bladder came in. And when they uh, started playing soccer and association football, which that's where the word soccer came from, the school of rugby in England they wanted to play a little bit different way. They wanted to be able to carry the ball and not just kick it. So that's where the term rugby comes from. And there was a couple individuals that lived real close to the school of rugby that had, I believe like a, a leather type of thing. I don't know if they were made shoes or just leather, you know, garments. And they decided to sew a casing around the pig's bladder because the pig's bladder would, would burst and it always would lose air. And I guess uh, the lowest person on the teams and even in early football, they'd have to reinflate the, the pig's bladder. So, you, you know, you picture what a pig's bladder is, you know, it's a, a bladder of an animal and, um, you know, you're tying it off wherever it's orifices were and you had to untie that thing and blow it back up. And, you know, it's a, it's probably a few days old now, but by, by the time they're using it and running around a field with, you know, a bunch of sweaty guys on it and, uh, so they do that, but they, ca- they put a casing around a football leather and had the had the laces are where the valve was. So they'd be in the middle of the game, ball would lose air. You know, even in rugby and early football, have to stop the game, undo the laces. Guy would come in, blow it up, retie it off, sew it back up, start the game over again. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting, but the shape of the football is a, in rugby ball is really to weigh the shape of the bladder is you know sort of that oval rounded uh, spherical shape that's you know not perfectly round and that's sort of where football started off using a rugby ball and then you know around 1906 when passing came in they said you know it's kind of a pain in the butt to try to throw this thing um, let's let's make it a little bit smaller a little bit you know less girth little pointier on the end, a little more aerodynamic and get this passing game going. So that's how that's the ball sort of evolved and that. And of course, you had, you know, vulcanized rubber came in in the 1860s. So they got rid of the pig's bladder and, you know, Charles Goodyear and that whole story. But uh, it's another interesting part of it.
0: Well, yeah, so many different changes that have happened. Um, it, it's hard to argue that changing the shape of the football can't be one of the the top, maybe Mount Rushmore's as far as advancing football to become America's sport and becoming the most, I mean, even though it's something we don't necessarily maybe think of on the surface, but passing really is what changed it from being baseball's stepchild, I guess you could say, to becoming the America's favorite sport. And speaking of around that time when it's becoming America's favorite sport, maybe a little bit beyond that even, were you around, do you remember when the terrible towel was invented?
1: I, I don't remember exactly when it came about, but I can remember it as young. So it's probably, it was like early seventies. I'd say, you know, I know Myron Cope did it. Who was a longtime uh, radio announcer for the Steelers. And uh, he did, I think it was like 1971, 72. He came in. So I was probably only about five years old. So I don't really remember that aspect of it, but I know we had one uh, Super Bowl nine. We had a, a terrible towel at our house. <laughs> it's the, the official one. So that was kind of a, a neat thing.
0: Yeah, one of the most iconic, I guess you could say, uh, fan wear type of deals. The terrib- Everybody knows what that terrible towel is. We might not have known the history except for, uh, I mean, I someone on the show explained it to me. I, I really can't remember for the life of me if it, who it was that told me how that came. Maybe maybe it was uh, Joe Zagorski because he has the 70s podcast. I, I bet that's where I, I learned it from. And he actually had an episode on it too on how that came to be. And um, the whole, I guess, genesis of it and that kind of thing. Uh, Speaking of podcasts, let's go back to your daily Pigskin Dispatch. What other insights potentially have you gained from creating a daily football history podcast that has really helped you maybe have a different perspective of the game? I I think I appreciate the,
1: the players from the bygone eras a lot more. Some people that I never heard of before. I mean, we talked earlier about George Wildcat Wilson and Johnny Mac Brown. Uh, there was a, a player from Michigan, Willie Heston. Uh, I believe he was like in the twenties and he was just, I mean, if you go back and, and read about him, we have a post back in his birthday. It was back in the fall. It's just unbelievable. Some of the accomplishments that this man did back in football. Um, you know, then you have like you know the Ernie Davis's uh, of the world. You know, just some of the things and the barriers that the man went through, and some of the great games he he did. You know, and Jim Brown and you know some of the other NFL players of that era. So it's these bygone eras that I didn't get to watch. You know, I watched football in the '70s, '80s, and beyond. But before that, I I really didn't know. But with YouTube and researching them, and you know, hearing some of the people that to watch them play. It's just, you know, some incredible stories.
0: Yeah. I can echo that sentiment too. starting about 2018. When I started this podcast is when I really started researching like the history of the game. I've, I've always been intrigued when I would see those things pop up on the, um, you know, that the broadcast would have, Oh yeah, that's right. The lions back in 34 did this or something, but it was few and far between compared to now that we're beyond the hundred season. And you know, I got to ask you this question. I'm going to give you those virtual keys to the DeLorean now, speaking of the past players. but you, what you go, mean it's
1: virtual? You, I can't, when I came on the show, I thought I was going like, to actually drive your DeLorean.
0: Maybe you can have this one right here. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it even lights up, so I'll give <laughs> wow, you that one right wow, there. <laughs> and uh, we'll give you the keys, 88 miles an hour, go back in point in time, any point in NFL history so you can relive one moment to be a fly on the wall, or you can even ask a question. Where are you going, Darren? I think I want to be the fly on the wall. And I want to go back to
1: 1889 and go to, I don't even care if it's a practice. I want to go to 1889 Yale football. He had Walter Camp in his second year as the official coach. He was a player coach before that. He's the coach of the team. On that team, Amos Alonzo Stagg is the end. Pudge Heffelfinger's one of the guards, and they had a bunch of other All-Americans on that team. And that wasn't even one of the greatest Yale teams because they were 15-1. They lost to Princeton last year. But just to be in that room with the football genius of, you know, Stag and, and Camp and that, that era, I think that would be phenomenal. And watch Pudge Heffelfinger play too, the first pro player ever to, to get paid. You know,
0: so <laughs> I think that would be awesome to also take – those three individuals and maybe more, but let's just go with those three individuals and we flash forward them, bring them back with you to nowadays for them to be able to maybe a little bit of horrified too, but for them to be able to see what their vision and what they, 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 they they saw something that a lot of other people did. not I just would be curious to the both ways with the DeLorean, let them come see how it's it's happened and us go back and see how it became there, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think
1: stag would be pretty cool with the game. I think camp would be mortified because his his fear of the pass and sort of you know sissifying the game is what many of the players said you know I think camp was on that that fence. just he'd probably be mortified to how how the passing game has sort of evolved, and it's not the you know three yards in a cloud of dust like we mentioned earlier. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. I think maybe Ralph Hay would be like, Hey dude, where's my money? <laughs> What's yeah. going on here? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but with that being said, so let's go back and let's circle this up to pigskin dispatch and the daily podcast and the blog that you have, which is at pigskindispatch.com. Part of the sports history network share with the listener of the show, any last kind parting words of wisdom you want to give about pigskin dispatch?
1: Well, if you're looking for that, you know, 10-minute football fix on a daily basis. That, that's what Pigskin Dispatch podcast is for. And we want to give you that, just give you those headlines, maybe f- fit in a little story here and there. Uh, we'll tell you where to get the full details, you know, where we're getting our sources from. So you can go and r- if you want to read more about the story. But we want to give you that headline you know, on this day type format and uh, you know, tell you what happened on this gridiron day.
0: There you go. Pigskin Dispatch a daily podcast and blog dedicated to positive football and uncovering, reliving, and retelling some of the greatest moments in the history of football. To learn more about Darren's work, you can find him on the Sports History Network website or right over to pigskindispatch.com. And although it's weird for me to say this, I will not, in air quotes, see you next week. But I will be back in a couple of weeks where we're going to bring on another partner of the Sports History Network to talk a little bit about Super Bowl history. That's going to be with Tommy Phillips from Lombardi Memories. And again, don't forget to head over to SportsHistoryNetwork.com. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. Make sure you're
1: the first to get the next episode. Please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.